today on Against the Grain, who is standing up to environmental plunder, land grabbing, and crony capitalism? According to Wolfram Dressler, the answer in one part of the Philippines is indigenous people and NGO staff, often while risking their lives. I'm CS. We'll re-present a conversation with the Australia-based geographer coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Illegal logging, the plundering of natural resources, rampant extractivism. These are all too common in many parts of the globe. People who take courageous stands against resource extraction and land grabbing often face harassment, intimidation, and violence perpetrated by powerful commercial interests, corrupt politicians, and hired hitmen. Wolfram Dressler, an Australia-based geographer, has brought to light the everyday struggles waged by indigenous activists and non-governmental organizations on a southern Philippines island called Palawan. These activists, which Dressler and others call environmental defenders, risk life and limb to protect forests, waters, and land in a country whose president, Rodrigo Duterte, has legitimized the violent targeting of environmental defenders. So argues Wolfram Dressler, Associate Professor in Geography at the University of Melbourne. His recent article in the journal Critical Asian Studies has the title Defending Lands and Forests, NGO Histories, Everyday Struggles, and Extraordinary Violence in the Philippines. When Wolfram and I connected recently, I asked how many environmental defenders have been murdered in the Philippines in recent years. Too many to count. There are different um, international NGOs like Global Witness that put the estimates up to over 100, you know, over the course of uh, several years, in excess of typically 30 uh, in any one year. But, you know, a lot of the, the deaths, the executions of environmental defenders they go undocumented, right? So those that are counted um, and that are publicized in the different reports from Global Witness, um, NGOs in the Philippines, they, they can't necessarily capture uh, all of those uh, different deaths uh, and murders that take place kind of in the shadows of the, you know, the political economy of violence um, in the country. And who typically are they murdered by? Uh, it's um, a really good question, um, and, and the answer is complex. The, the murders themselves um, transpire through a whole range of kind of political uh, and social uh, and economic processes. They emerge in, let's say, a witch's brew of kind of crony capitalism, patron-client relations, um, harassment and intimidation that kind of emerge over um, longer periods of time and resistance um, to those forces by activists. And so often kind of emerging out of that witch's brew are political elites, kind of landed capitalists, um, those, a combination of those uh, who are invested in um, accumulating land for the purposes of oil palm plantations, um, mining, um, who often um, may kind of orchestrate harassment and intimidation and murder of activists themselves, um, or they may pay somebody, um, a hitman or another kind of shadowy figure uh, to do that on their behalf. Um, Sometimes they will pay them kind of a a cash amount, kind of a a manila envelope. Um, They may provide them with the gun. And in other cases, the murders and executions may take may may unfold through members of other uh, marginalized um, communities um, who have taken up different types of insurgencies and violent struggles. Um, and uh, the murders could be retaliatory um, as a result of kind of longstanding civil, political, and economic grievances um, that emerge 
within and between insurgencies. And of course, that drags in the, the police, uh, the military, um, and the paramilitary. Well, it's useful to talk about some of the political economic history behind what's happening to environmental defenders in the contemporary Philippines. You, in your article, go all the way back to World War II. I don't want to go quite that far, although feel free to bring that in if you'd like. But a lot of people in the U.S. have heard of Ferdinand Marcos, who was president of the Philippines from 1965 to 1986. What happened to agrarian reform and agrarian activism under his rule? There was um, national government impetus um, to facilitate agrarian reform. And um, that's a carryover from actually the American administration um, during the colonial period. And Ferdinand Marcos did attempt to spearhead uh, agrarian reform redistribution of land, um, but uh, it was a very piecemeal effort that didn't progress anything um, in terms of the reallocation of land um, to the rural poor. Um, and in fact, what Marcos did was facilitate the consolidation of most rural lands for his own cronies uh, to kind of expand agribusiness development um, in different parts of the country, particularly in Mindanao and in Luzon. The uprising known as the People Power Revolution ousted Marcos from power in 1986. Cory Aquino, wife of the murdered Marcos opponent Benino Aquino, led the Philippines from 1986 to 1992. She was a more uh, progressive figure, right? Yes, that's right. Um, and it was under Aquino, that the constitution was amended, uh, that uh, agrarian reform initiatives, um, indigenous rights programs and legislation, um, devolution of kind of political authority and power uh, was put into the hands of actors at the subnational level, um, which essentially facilitated kind of the democratization of environmental governance uh, to make it a lot more transparent um, with an explicit focus on kind of ensuring that the rural and urban poor had access to and use of natural resources for their livelihoods and that um, human rights was kind of an explicit provision of different kind of conservation and development um, programs. So it was Cory Aquino um, that put, for example, indigenous rights to land uh, and natural resources kind of within the legal framework of uh, the Philippines post-Marcos, which was then carried forward under Ramos um, and other presidents um, to give rise to what was then very progressive legislation known as the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act and other clauses that made indigenous rights and indeed human rights to kind of land and natural resources and water and indeed protections for well-being kind of paramount in the country. And, and it was at this time that a lot of kind of the democratization of uh, resource management um, and, and governance created new political openings for non-governmental organizations and so-called people's organizations to kind of flourish. And these people organizations and NGOs, they drew heavily on these new legal provisions that protected human rights and kind of sustainability um, to progress their work um, in areas that had been plundered and grabbed under previous administrations. Yeah, in fact, you write about a logging moratorium that was lobbied for, uh, successfully lobbied for by non-governmental organizations on this island that you're writing about Palawan in the southern Philippines. Uh, that moratorium, uh, would you say, came in an atmosphere in which NGOs could achieve a measure of success in terms of environmental protection and conservation? Yeah, that's right. Um, in the 1990s, 2000s, early 2000s, 
you had a lot of non-governmental organizations starting to work with rural um, people's organizations that were set up by indigenous peoples themselves um, to spearhead different types of social movements in the countryside. And a lot of these social movements in terms of, you know, more localized kind of resource over-exploitation issues um, and different, you know, social and environmental grievances, um, they accelerated uh, and they intensified into kind of larger uh, provincial social movements, and they expanded out into kind of national uh, social movements that pushed for kind of legislative amendments um, and moratoriums on logging, mining, uh, overfishing, so on and so forth. So my point here is that a lot of the social movements, they begin through uh, localized struggles and they're catalyzed and they're, they're intensified through the different social and political networks that exist kind of within and between people's organizations led by indigenous peoples and kind of grassroots NGOs. Then the social movements, they gain even greater momentum. They span across provinces and then across the country itself, where then larger non-governmental organizations like the World Wildlife Fund or the Haribon Foundation begin to bankroll the media campaigns um, and the message of these social movements um, so that kind of the main objectives and aims are communicated more broadly um, across the country um, and that more and more kind of media attention and pressure can be brought to bear on politicians in Manila who then have the capacity to legislate moratoriums on logging um, and other extractive developments. Right. So that in, in itself is kind of the anatomy of social movements that have the spark kind of at the grassroots. And that's where the labor um, and the passion for these social movements comes from. And that's what I wanted to get across in this paper, that it's, it's the rural folk, it's the indigenous peoples, it's the farmers, it's the fishers. These are the people who catalyze social movement and change with NGOs in the country. Yeah, and how has that worked? Because the NGOs, they move in, uh, they start operating, uh, you know, at various times in uh, Palawan, uh, beginning, I think, in the, you know, especially in the late 1980s, but certainly up to the present. And then they try to identify people on the ground, indigenous people and others who can work with them to organize their communities and stage mobilizations and the like. So what kind of people do these NGOs want to recruit? Yeah, um, uh, that's an excellent question. The process um, unfolds through a whole range of, of ways. Often it is indigenous peoples, um, peasants, and other rural folk who go to non-governmental organizations with complaints and grievances about human rights abuses, uh, resource grabs, land grabs, resource over-exploitation in their own communities. Um, <clears throat> and then a plan is orchestrated. It is, it is then set up in terms of, you know, what is the best way to push back, to resist and organize against these human rights abuses, um, land grabs, and resource exploitations that are taking place. So indigenous peoples and non-governmental organizations who ally themselves in partnerships of resistance and defense, they have, to they have to be very careful to ensure that how they respond to a particular you know, abuse or, or, or resource grab is well calibrated in terms of the other actors uh, involved who are stoking the plunder and, and, and over-exploitation. Because if you push back against a particularly powerful politician, their pushback can be double um, and more forceful and powerful, which can put the community that NGOs are looking to work with who have grievances in jeopardy and in harm's way, right? So the work of defending and activism, um, it is it's very sophisticated, it's very nuanced, it's thought through and it's, it's done very carefully, right? It isn't just about kind of organizing a protest, going with placards um, to a dam site and shouting um, slogans, right? It is 
it's much more calibrated uh, in terms of the context in which these things take place. Um, and in other instances, you have non-governmental organizations going to rural areas in frontier locations that are known to have different kind of extractive situations and circumstances unfolding, like the expansion of a mine, the clearing of forests for an oil palm plantation, uh, the construction of a dam, right? And within that context of existing or anticipated resource exploitation, non-governmental organizations will work carefully in communities that are likely to be affected or are being affected by these environmental changes to choose leaders who share their grievances, their concerns um, and interests in stopping these uh, forms of resource plunder and the human rights abuses that are associated with them. And they will begin to mobilize the community through these leaders to facilitate kind of grassroots community uh, resistance Wolfram Dressler is his name. He joins us on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. He's Associate Professor in Geography at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He's the author of Old Thoughts and New Ideas, State Conservation Measures, Development and Livelihood on Palawan Island. We are talking about an article he wrote called Defending Lands and Forests. NGO Histories, Everyday Struggles and Extraordinary Violence in the Philippines. It recently appeared in the journal Critical Asian Studies. Yeah, I want to go more into sort of the calibrated approach that you spoke of taken by these environmental defenders in relation to sometimes violent pro-extractive people and groups and corporations and politicians on the ground in this on this island. Uh, but before we do that, the extractivist activities, let's draw that out a little more. You, you keep talking about palm oil, and this is a, a key activity that has affected the lives and the land and the livelihoods of indigenous people and people who've moved to Palawan. What is palm oil? Palm oil um, is essentially the oil that comes from the fruits of the, the palm that is part of these large plantations. It is essentially um, a palm native to Western Africa uh, that was brought to Southeast Asia in the 1800s, 1900s um, and has since um, expanded dramatically in the form of large uh, to medium-sized plantations all throughout mainland Southeast Asia, but in particular in insular Southeast Asia, such as Indonesia, Malaysia, and increasingly the Philippines. Now, the, the fruit um, that is harvested from the palms from these plantations um, are often part of uh, fresh fruit bundles, which are picked and harvested off of the palms. They're cut off. Um, with machetes and, and scythes and loaded into uh, tractors and baskets um, and then hauled off into uh, processing mills where the fruit is crushed and an oil is rendered. And that oil is part of a whole range of industrial and consumer products. Um, everything from uh, varnish for furnishings, uh, shampoo, soap, chocolate bars, you name it, palm oil is in there. What happens to people and land on, for example, Palawan when palm oil plantations are created and expanded, which has been what's happening there? Yeah. Um, land grabs, deep dispossession, and agrarian violence, which is followed with bloodshed um, and resistance. Yeah, and I imagine the violence you're talking about is often unleashed on these environmental defenders, people who want to resist these plantations and the people behind them? Yes, precisely. Uh, so just to complicate the picture a bit, um, a lot of rural communities want oil palm. Um, they want to be able to engage in the labor and the income generation opportunities of working in plantations. 
Um, and often they want to plant oil palm themselves on their land. Often there are feeder roads that are set up. There are uh, brokers and other intermediaries who facilitate the provision of loans, you know, credit that farmers need for other agricultural activities and to develop oil palm. Um, and in some instances, um, if the sale of the fresh fruit bundles is as regular and a small holding or a plantation is producing these fruits with uh, you know a reasonably consistent yield, um, farmers can can generate a a significant income, and they their kind of social and economic standard of living, the quality of life, can improve considerably. Now, many um, indigenous communities and peasants. Um, across the Philippines and Indonesia, they would rather continue to cultivate agriculture uh, that they know that they do well um, and that is part of their own social and um, kind of economic relations. Um, and importantly, many indigenous and peasant peoples are not willing to simply give up their lands to be incorporated, to be swallowed up into large scale plantations which actually require the constant accumulation of land in order to ensure that production expands and that economies of scale are met to ensure that profit continues. Right? Um, <clears throat> what happens often is that indigenous and peasant communities have their lands incorporated into plantations without any documentary evidence, without any receipts acknowledging the fact that their lands, the size of the lands, the location of the lands were actually incorporated into plantations, such that without any evidence of this incorporation taking place you know, over the years, all of their own property markers that allowed them to tell others that they owned and they controlled this land is lost. Um, it is erased. The potential to reclaim access to that land no longer exists because there's no uh, there's no paper trail that allows them to document that this took place, right? Um, and the reason is is because many indigenous and peasant smallholders um, they don't have formal property rights over their land, and and that's not because they don't want formal property rights like private title over the lands. It's because the government doesn't give it to them, right? So they don't actually have proof of title. So plantation owners. Uh, mining magnets, um, they take advantage of this kind of informal land occupation and use, knowing full well that when land is incorporated into extractive regimes, it is effectively under the corporation's control, often in perpetuity. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Wolfram Dressler is my guest. He teaches geography at the University of Melbourne. He's co-editor of the volume Nature, Inc., Environmental Conservation in the Neoliberal Age. We are talking about an article he wrote about struggles over land, struggles to defend lands and forests and waters in the Philippines that was included in the journal Critical Asian Studies. So you spoke earlier about NGOs and how they attract or they recruit or they ally themselves with rural activists. And these activists, these defenders, along with the NGO staff, many of them become what you refer to as para-enforcers. They do something called para-enforcement. What is para-enforcement? Para-enforcement is the, the act of enforcing kind of on behalf in a kind of de facto capacity um, for the state. You know, doing the enforcement work through an NGO, but kind of informally on behalf of the government because the government is not able to do its job efficiently, effectively in certain parts of the country. So in this case, we're talking about laws that protect and conserve the environment that were passed on the state level, but that state agents are not either willing or able to enforce on the ground. That's correct. Um, and 
I mean, I should add that there are many fantastic able-bodied individuals who are implementing the rule of law in government with NGOs and rural communities every day in the country. However, there are many other actors in government um, for a variety of political and economic reasons who are unable to enforce in an efficient and effective way um, that NGOs see as a really serious deficiency, right? And they mobilize themselves, such as the Palawan NGO Network Incorporated under the leadership of a charismatic um, director who take it upon themselves to engage in direct para enforcement work um, to, you know, kind of in their words, to get the job done a lot more efficiently and effectively. Um, and the reason they, they believe that they can do this para enforcement work more efficiently and pick up the slack from government um, is because they have a more nimble staff, um, they have better and closer connections with indigenous and peasant communities, um, often because these rural communities know that these non-governmental organizations have had a history fighting against crony capitalism, human rights abuses, and environmental exploitation under the Marcos regime. So they automatically have um, a greater ability to trust non-governmental organizations because they know that they will, they traditionally allied with them against rapacious plunder from the government and corporations, and they can continue to do this today, kind of within the context of globalized extractivism that is manifesting at a, an intensifying rate across the countryside and the country. You describe in your article what happens when, say, environmental defenders go and personally confront illegal activity. So they hear about illegal logging or other resource extraction taking place, and they, and this must take incredible courage, they take it upon themselves to go and confront the people acting illegally. When they do that, what are they trained to do in order to protect themselves, to keep themselves out of harm's way in what could be a very volatile situation? So seldom is it that an environmental defender will work alone. In most cases, they will work in groups of three or four, minimum of two. Um, and the reason is, is because as I wrote in the article, certain members of the group who are about to make a, a citizen's arrest or a confiscation of, of material um, are on lookout. They need to ensure that there is nobody else coming to the site who is involved in the illegal activity. Uh, they need to ensure that there is a, a an exit point that isn't blocked, right? So that the environmental defenders can make a quick escape um, from a particular area. How are the environmental defenders accustomed to or trained to interact with the people doing illegal things that they encounter, they confront? Yeah, um, I, I think that that's, that was one of the most interesting understandings that emerged through my discussions and collaborations with environmental defenders in the Philippines, and that most environmental um, defenders, uh, human rights activists, um, they try to avoid direct confrontation with uh, so-called illegalista, those engaged in illegal activities. Um, so in moments when environmental defenders come to and confront those involved in illegal activities, um, they will work to yell out um, loudly, but in a, in a, in a kind of non-confrontational way that a citizen's arrest is taking place. They will then recite particular state legislation, um, a, a certain statute that uh, tells the illegalista that what they are doing is illegal. This might be by citing a particular provision of the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act, for example, on the spot, right? Um, and simultaneously, other members of the uh, defender group or squad, if you will, is ensuring that any weapons that the legalista has um, is contained, um, like gun, uh, a machete, so on and so forth, um, such that um, there is no kind of retaliation that unfolds that can, that can maim uh, or kill 
environmental defender when they're when they're doing their work. You also write that surprise is crucial. The element of surprise is crucial. In what way? The element of surprise is absolutely crucial. Um, so environmental defenders they need to be able to to ambush um, and circle um, those who are engaged in illegal activities, um, so that they don't have the ability to organize and retaliate when moments of confiscation happen. And critically, uh, to ensure that um, para-enforcers and environmental defenders catch illegalistas in the act, right? So if they have the ability to catch um, poachers with a, you know, a pangolin in a leg trap, right, where the, the pangolin is still flip-flopping on a leg trap, um, or they have the ability to catch um, someone cutting timber with a chainsaw that is still hot, that still has kind of oil dripping from it, right? Um, they can, they have the ability to take photos um, to document the, the, the freshness of the act to show that indeed this is the clearest and most direct evidence of the illegal activity, which they can then use uh, to support their case in the court of law, if that eventuates. Labrito Labog, he was a devout Catholic and in fact a pastor living on Palawan. He was an environmental defender. Unfortunately, we, we have to talk about him in the past tense. Um, what kind of environmental defender work was he doing? And, uh, you know, he knew it was risky. He knew he could lose his life. I mean, you talk to many defenders over many years, and uh, they're aware of the risks involved. Uh, tell us uh, his story about what he was trying to do on the ground and what happened to him. Lebita Lebog, um was, uh, he was a special man. He and his wife, with uh, the community development and activism work that they were doing, they were selfless individuals. And a lot of their kind of religious convictions um, and working for their fellow Katatubo, uh, which is kind of indigenous peoples, um, came ahead of their own kind of personal priorities. Labrito uh, Labog was uh, involved in community work um, in different parts of Palawan, uh, but most committed uh, to organizing indigenous peoples known as the Palawan in southern Palawan, uh, which is kind of a uh, illegal resource use extractive uh, hotspot uh, where there's a lot of indigenous peoples who are being subject um, to the expansion of mining, oil palm um, activities, and um, illegal timber poaching, uh, so on and so forth. So, I mean, I knew um, Labug uh, quite well and have invested in his his campaigns, you know, professionally and personally with financial support. And so his passing uh, was a, a deep blow to the activist community on Palawan, to his wife, uh, to his his young children um, and his, his fellow indigenous peoples, and of course, you know, to other NGO members and 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 to myself. And um, you know, he had been um, kind of organizing um, his community um, through his people's organization, um, which is kind of a type of community organization to resist land grabs and illegal uh, resource use. For, for quite some time. Um, and so he, uh, despite warnings from Illegalista, uh, he continued with his work and he kept on resisting um, land grabs and illegal um, timber uh, and mangrove poaching in his area. Finally, um, it got to a point where um, different death threats, um, intimidation and harassment um, were intensifying. Um, they were becoming louder and louder. The, the, you know, the, the chatter and the noise of death threats became increasingly prominent. Um, and certain illegalistas even communicated messages um, to his wife and, 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 and neighbors that, you know, if Labog didn't stop 
his his work and his his, his community organizing that something negative uh, harmful would befall him. And so one evening after a community organizing um, meeting, he was followed. Um, he was leaving on motorcycle and he was followed by others in tandem on a motorbike and he was and, and his uh, fellow activists uh, were executed. Um, they fell off their motorbikes uh, and they died in a pool of blood. And the, the death uh, was only communicated to his wife um, sometime after the fact. And all of his evidence um, of illegal activities, his USB uh, cards, um, his documentation, his paperwork, uh, it was all confiscated and was never uh, to be seen again. Um, so that case is being pursued uh, by uh, an NGO to try to uh, determine what happened um, and to bring to justice those who committed these atrocities. Uh, however, I fear that his case, like many other defenders, has fallen into a black legal hole, um, never to resurface again. That's the voice of Wolfram Dressler, assistant professor in geography at the University of Melbourne. Uh, we're talking about an article he wrote that appeared in the journal Critical Asian Studies. It's called Defending Lands and Forests, NGO Histories, Everyday Struggles, and Extraordinary Violence in the Philippines. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Let's talk about the, the state and the government. So we have... A fairly not a very notorious president right now, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, well known for his uh, violent ways for encouraging uh, vigilante justice against a variety of marginalized populations in the Philippines. So I guess some people, when they hear you talk about environmental defenders, sort of being para enforcers, enforcing state law. And sometimes working with, sometimes working in alliance with state agents, police, army units to effect environmental protection in this southern Philippines island called Apalawan. They might wonder, well, well what about uh, Duterte on the environment? Is he pro-environment? And more, maybe more critically, is he in fact pro-indigenous people? and pro-environmental activism? Is he actually throwing his weight behind efforts to uh, protect lands and peoples and livelihoods from extractivist activities, from the kind of land grabbing that you're talking about? What, what do we need to know about Duterte on these issues? Duterte uh, started his presidency uh, with very kind of progressive ideals um, about the environment. Um, he hired uh, Gina Lopez, an environmental activist, a media tycoon, to head up the Department of Environment and Natural Resources. And in doing so, Gina Lopez canceled the mining licenses of a number of mining corporations across the Philippines. And with that action, Duterte had to, to sack Gina Lopez um, and then subsequently, all of the hopes in the NGO community that Duterte would uphold policy that was uh, that followed a kind of a precautionary principle with uh, mining and plantations uh, was dashed. And this was because Duterte, you know, around two years after he was elected, uh, pivoted to a extractivist mandate, right, where Extractivism, mining, uh, plantations, uh, so on and so forth, were seen as the basis for kind of sustained economic growth, right? And with his kind of brash, violent rhetoric, um, a lot of mining and, and plantation um, companies and the violent um, enforcers that they often work with to ensure that their uh, enclosures can expand and that extractivism can continue, um, have drawn on that rhetoric from the president and certain uh, parts of the government to continue to expand extractivism through uh, land grabs, uh, intimidation, and harassment and, and, and other violence uh, with uh, considerable impunity. 
right? So the, the culture of impunity uh, that exists at the highest levels of the state have permeated through kind of the, ex, the, the shadowy extractivist world and kind of illegal uh, activities and, and violence against defenders um, in unimaginable ways um, and has given rise to a whole range of uh, human rights and environmental abuses uh, in urban and rural areas. Um, and it's, it's important to add uh, that, you know, this is separate but connected to Duterte's war on drugs, right? And so the culture of community that uh, has enabled um, harassment and violence against environmental defenders is part of the culture of impunity that has given rise to authorities killing so-called uh, drug users, drug pushers, so on and so forth, right? Going against the state's very own mandate to protect its citizens, right? And, that, and that's the, the cruel irony or the sad uh, context of all of this, right? The state should be there to protect, not to enable harassment and deaths of its own citizens. Red tagging is a phenomenon. It is a, an approach directed against environmental defenders and other leftists. What's going on with, with red tagging? Uh, red tagging has a, a deep social history uh, with violent, violent consequences for um, activists in the country. Red tagging is a phenomenon that essentially means government authorities, um, parastate enforcers, um, judicial arms of the government, basically brand certain members of kind of the left-wing activist community uh, or otherwise as reds, as communists, that the activists who are in kind of the left political space um, are somehow affiliated with kind of communist ideology that is associated with kind of the Communist Party of the Philippines and the insurgency uh, on the ground, which is part of the New People's Army. Right? And the vast majority of kind of left activists who are red tagged as red communists are in fact priests, mothers and fathers, um, you know, who are engaged in activism that is measured uh, common sense every day, right? And have absolutely nothing to do with the communist movement in the country. But even if they did, and there is no evidence to suggest that they were involved in criminal activity, they shouldn't be red tagged and thus criminalized for their political philosophy, um, which is very much akin to McCarthyism in the United States, um, which permeated that ideology of McCarthyism permeated Ferdinand Marcos's administration, and I think sowed the seeds for uh, indiscriminate red tagging across the country. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Wolfram Dressler, associate professor in geography at the University of Melbourne, who wrote about NGO histories, everyday struggles, and extraordinary violence in the Philippines. That's a subtitle of an article that appears in the journal Critical Asian Studies that he wrote. He is author of Old Thoughts in New Ideas, State Conservation Measures, Development, and Livelihood on Palawan Island. That is one of the islands of the Philippines, and that is the focus of his article in Critical Asian Studies. And your article uh, goes into and tries to shed light on the sort of everyday experience of environmental defenders. So, you know, we might hear about their political activities, uh, their efforts to defend spaces and places and resources. And maybe we don't think so much about their family lives and their, their livelihoods, the ways they, they make their living. Talk about the, the sort of the intersection of everyday life and defender work 
And, you know, what do you want to convey about the challenges that striking a balance between those kinds of things involves? Yeah, thanks for that excellent question, because uh, that's the, the essence um, and the main point of the article and is to, to humanize environmental and human rights uh, defending and activism, um, because it is predominantly done by the rural and the urban poor, who, as they attempt to make a living kind of on the land or on the coasts and the ocean, are seeing their environment uh, their source of subsistence and income being destroyed beneath them or around them. Um, and so in many cases, they have little choice but to resist, to organize themselves and their communities uh, to fight back, right? Because their land, their ocean is their source of survival. It is the only way of providing for their family. And when that is gone as a result of corporate capitalist uh, greed and tendency and the violence that is associated with that, there is nothing left for them and for the communities in these spaces. These communities um, and rural farmers and fishers who become activists, um, they they don't have formal wage employment. They don't have salaries. They don't have a grocery store to go to um, to get frozen chicken or or whatever. They live on the land, they subsist on the land, right? They get their water from the land, they get their, their, their meat from the forest. You know, they will hunt wild pig, they will get meat from, um, from fish, right? And so when their resource base and the basis of their subsistence is gone and the social and cultural connection to that, um, there is very little left for them, right? And so as a result of that, Right? The deep connection to the land, biophysically, economically, and spiritually, many people, um, either they ally themselves with corporations or they take up an activist cause to push back against it. Right? But that balancing act between providing for your family you know, protein, carbohydrates you know, from the land and the sea, and activism is no easy task. Because in many cases, activism can be more than just part-time, right? It can start off as kind of intermittent and part-time, and then it become full-time if it's part of a social campaign, a social movement, right? Then the question is, how does the family provide for itself? You know, do the mother and the father, the husband and wife team, do they organize their time in a way that ensures that uh, there is food on the table? What do the children do, right? Um, who looks after the children if it's both the the wife and the husband involved in a campaign together, like with La Boc, right? Is it the grandparents who then tend to the children, right? Who looks after the Swidden field? Who ensures that the field is weeded to ensure that weeds don't subsume and kill newly planted rice stalks? So that balancing act is crucial, right? But it is done successfully and very successfully with the support of non-governmental organizations from the city who can find ways to support rural and urban activists to get the job done well. But the, you know, the remarkable side of the story, um, and it needs to be told again, and in probably even more ethnographic detail, is that it is the rural and urban poor um, who are doing this work to protect the common good, you know, to keep the air clean, to keep the, the, the species alive in forests on behalf of the global community. Right? They're sacrificing their lives for us. And the problem is, is that not enough people care. Right? And that was the impetus behind the article. So we need to support NGO activists, the work that they're doing in the global South. Because if we don't, we're all in jeopardy. One environmental activist, environmental defender, told you, well, from that, quote, when we walk towards the site for enforcement, in other words, they have learned that some sort of illegal activity is taking place, and so they're going to that site. We often feel sad, but when we hear the sound of a chainsaw, suddenly we become active and strong. I do not know. It is hard to explain, but I think it makes us strong. How do you, how does that strike you? Uh, yeah, it, it, it strikes me hard. 
Um, I mean, it shows me that their cause and determination in enforcement and defending their lands um, basically quells, overcomes their fear and trepidation, um, knowing that they're putting themselves um, in harm's way. Right? So it, it just highlights the deep conviction that environmental and human rights activists have um, in the Philippines and, and how incredibly selfless they are with the work that they do and how incredibly dignified and humble they are with the activism um, that unfolds in the country. Uh, and, and, and that's the, the most inspirational part of, of doing work on Palawan Island. It is the last ecological frontier of the Philippines. Um, and all of the, the activist scholars who do work, whether they're Filipino or foreigners like me, are incredibly humbled and honored uh, to be working with the non-governmental communities um, and the indigenous and peasant activists on that island and indeed uh, the rest of the country. Wolfram Dressler, he teaches geography at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He's co-editor with Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher of the book Nature, Inc., Environmental Conservation in the Neoliberal Age, author of Old Thoughts and New Ideas, State Conservation Measures, Development and Livelihood on Palawan Island. And we've been talking about a critical Asian studies journal article he wrote called Defending Lands and Forests, NGO Histories, Everyday Struggles, and Extraordinary Violence in the Philippines. Wolfram, thank you for your work, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's, it's been an honor. And that program first aired on August 31st of this year. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>